Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's Chess Life magazine cover story. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which includes One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, where Dan Lucas talks to people who are advancing our mission statement, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, hosted by our women's program director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our assistant director of national events, Pete Cargianis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or you can subscribe via iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Today's guest on Cover Stories with Chess Life is the author of our November 2021 cover story on the U.S. Open, which he won with a dominating performance and score of eight and a half out of nine. More recently, he finished in shared fourth through sixth place at the 2021 U.S. Championship, his plus one score leaving him just a half point outside the playoff, eventually won by Grandmaster Wesley So. Grandmaster Alex Lenderman is one of America's top players, and his story is one of long, hard work paying off with success. U.S. chess records have him playing nearly 1,200 tournaments since 2001, including seemingly every event in the New York City area for many years. These include dozens of New York Masters Rapid events, uh, a series created by Greg Shahadi back in the early 2000s, and much closer to my heart, two Nassau Chess Club Championships in 2007 and 2008. Today, he has, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, uh, a master's degree from Webster University? Uh, Bachelors. Bachelors. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, where where he was on their fabled chess team. Uh, And are you still in school or are you taking a hiatus? No, I'm graduated. Okay. So uh, with degree in hand, he is looking to a bright future indeed. So. You've already heard him, but good morning, Alex. Uh, where am I speaking you speaking to you from today? Uh, right now, at the St. Louis Chess Club. Um, I was supposed to be at one of the guest houses for GM residents, but today the internet went out in my house, so so I'm doing uh, the internet from a chess club, uh, a couple of uh, 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 just like a hundred meters from from the from the house. So. So some people have, have probably heard of this Grandmaster in Residence program in St. Louis, but um, I'm not sure everyone knows exactly what's involved with it. So c- could you tell us a little bit about what your duties are as the Grandmaster in Residence? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So GM in Residence is something that uh, rotates every two to four weeks, something like that. So usually they would hire a Grandmaster for you know, two to four weeks to stay at, in St. Louis. And uh, the duties would include uh, doing classes, both online and, and in person, um, sometimes teaching at a, at a school, um, also doing some live events on Twitch, such as streaming, playing the people, um, and doing a simul, just all these things. So, And also doing l- some of the lessons I'm doing via Twitch, some of the lessons I'm doing via uh, YouTube as well. Uh, but I'm in person at the club. but they're also a lot of the classes are translated via YouTube or or Twitch. So um, so basically, it's they're trying to do it to kind of um, for the large uh, 
for the large community. Yeah, so that's basically what it is in a nutshell. You um, you get to stay at at the Grandmaster House, which which sometimes gets talked about in passing in in chess life stories or um, you know in, in any sort of account of, of of life for chess players in St. Louis. But again, I'm sure I'm not sure many people know exactly what the Grandmaster House is. So could you tell us a little bit about it? Um, well, yes, I I don't know exactly how it came to be, but I think uh, at some point the I guess maybe Rex Sinkfield, I mean or the people involved with the St. Louis Chess Club bought all these houses, maybe like five to seven houses, I don't know exactly how many, for um, for grandmasters to be able to stay, let's say, during certain tournaments, certain invitationals, or or just to live there for, for some time. Uh, or maybe it's also reserved for sometimes for the top players or top commentators and people like that. So basically the elite that come to, to the St. Louis. And of course, the GMs and residents. So, um, so that's basically what they are. It's, they're um, very good houses, obviously. Um, and um, um, yeah, <laughs> not sure what else. Uh, that's okay. It's it's just um, a- another slice of of what uh, the the St. Louis Chess Club and the World Chess Hall of Fame are doing to to grow the game. Um, and yeah, to an outsider, it's just absolutely fascinating that probably at any given time you've got, you know, at least a handful of titled players just hanging out, <laughs> living in well, these houses. I think the, and- the, the GM and residence thing is actually rotates. So there's all, almost always, I believe, there's going to be a grandmaster doing events in, in the St. Louis Chateau, except for, of course, during the pandemic before the, the vaccines. Um, when most of the world was shut down then i think uh, there were maybe still gms and residents but kind of doing stuff only online but i think only recently they started resuming the stuff in person again i already have experience with it because i also did it in 2019 this gm and residence so i kind of already knew what to expect so this time you know now it's they're trying to grow it even more so for example I'm doing more streaming events this time than before. I'm also doing online classes, which wasn't a thing, let's say, as much uh, two years ago. So, yeah, chess is growing to a larger community, basically. The other day, I was doing a, a Twitch stream where I was doing a lecture, and there were even GMs, IMs, and FMs, uh, title players, who were actually watching these streams and suggesting moves and stuff like that. So this really challenges me to make sure I come up with very challenging content, uh, co- content, um, making sure that there's something for everyone that, you know, I don't completely bore the top players, but also I can sometimes um, teach the lower rated as well, where I can ex- break things down. So I need to have that healthy balance um, when I when I have the YouTube or a Twitch audience, because you just never know who might be in those uh, in the chat. So uh, this podcast will come out this week. Um, when do you leave St. Louis, or, or when when is your stint as a Grandmaster in Residence up? Yeah, it started on October twenty first, and it ends on November 9th. So it's three weeks with uh, minus one day, basically. So I decided to just try to do it right after the U.S. Championship um, because I'm already here and I don't want to travel extra times if, if possible these days. So I, I would like to try to do things all at once. Uh, I got to say, Alex, that was a, a professional segue 
into the next thing I wanted to talk to you about uh, was your performance at the U.S. Championship. I think um, from an outsider, it certainly felt like you had a decent tournament. Uh, how did you feel about your performance? Well, I think uh, good and bad, of course. Um, like in my opinion, any tournament where you don't actually achieve your maximum goal from the opportunities you have uh, cannot really be considered satisfactory. Like it makes you hungry to try to work even harder. You start feeling that maybe um, you didn't do quite enough prep at home and something a little bit was was missing. Because yeah, when you're this close to winning the tournament, obviously you, you feel like it's a very big missed opportunity. Um, but at the same time, it was very encouraging because, for example, in the U.S. Open, which we'll probably talk about later, I, I'll admit I got lucky uh, quite a few games. And even the games that it looked like I won cleanly, there was also some luck involved, like some uh, behind-the-scenes luck that uh, one might not notice and you know very easily. Uh, in the U.S. Championship, I almost feel like it was a little bit the opposite. Um, like, and I think it kind of even started with my first game against Lanier Dominguez, where I thought um, I um, I outplayed him and I had very good opportunities to win. And then in the very end, um, like none of the tactics just were working out, right? And like it seemed like every little detail that I missed would actually hurt my advantage. Whereas, you know, for example, if I have a tournament where I get lucky, even when I miss something or I don't see something in advance, very often it would turn out to be good for me anyway. So that's what I also think like it's a part of luck. So where in the US Championship, I feel like I've missed a little bit more opportunities than I've gained. I mean, there were a couple of times I got a little bit lucky as well in the U.S. Championship, but I feel like I also left a lot of points on the table, like the first game and the game against Fabi could have gone either way. And even some of my other games, I missed some creative opportunities. I mean, I don't consider that that necessarily bad luck. That's more, I think, just uh, that skill of mine hasn't really been developed as much as it should have. But... um so I don't really consider it bad luck. I feel like, you know, you make your own luck. Um, and I try to remain as uh, objective as possible. But, uh, you know, when you gain almost 20 points and you get plus one in the field like that, and you almost win the tournament, even despite, um, you know, missing a lot of opportunities, I feel like overall my, uh, my quality of chess was uh, pretty high, uh, at least uh, much better than I, let's say, uh, would be able to think I can play even a few months ago when I just graduated from Webster and when I was very low on my confidence. So in that sense, my last two tournaments were very encouraging that like I, I start to actually believe that there's a very realistic chance that I can be uh, someday above 2,700 P-Day if I actually really put my heart and soul into the game and really work hard the way I'm supposed to train. So, um, so in that sense, it was very encouraging. I feel like uh, my level of play uh, was good. And um, yes, there were quite a few things that could be improved on, but I, I try to look at it in a positive way and like a very good step in, in the right direction as well. But at the same time, like I already mentioned, if anytime you don't achieve your maximum from the opportunities you have, you cannot be fully satisfied. So I guess that's, that's it in a nutshell. It's interesting to hear you talk about uh, the hard work you're going to have to do and then the preparation you'll have to do to get to the next level. What what does it take for someone of your strength to improve? And, and how do you go about preparing for some of the best prepared players in the world? I mean, you know, Caruana's 
opening prep is legendary. Shankland is, is, has got some pretty decent prep himself. Uh, you know, Dominguez, Swirts. I mean, these, these are heavyweights. How, how did you, how did you get ready for that? Well, I think the, the, the main thing for me was, uh, to just not worry about what their prep is and just make sure that at least my prep is, um, is better than it was before. Because for example, even a few months ago, I, I thought that my prep against 1E4 was almost inexistent. It was just at a very low level. And E4 has gotten, become a very dangerous move, uh, even more dangerous than, let's say, it was a few years ago. And uh, I knew that every single one of my opponents could play E4. Could, could I ask uh, in the turn. Why, why you say that? Why do you think E4 is more of a problem now than it was a few years ago? Um, well, I think, uh, for one, um, you know, E4, E5, um, you have to really know the Italian Giacomo Piano very well. And it's a very quiet opening where you have to really understand the nuances. So to play that kind of position, um, if you haven't really studied it very deeply, is um, it's going to be very difficult unless you really spend countless hours trying to understand the nuances. It's just a very hard position to play for both colors. Right? You have to really understand all the details and uh, and even the the Berlin, if you want to play the Berlin, there's all these uh, D3 lines and even the, the the end game line, like MVL wins countless games on the white side in it, right? So you have to really be very, very well prepared. And um, um, the Niter has also gotten quite dangerous. And uh, the lines I've always relied on were mostly Caracan, French in the past. Uh, I've played some other Sicilians, but they weren't as great. So basically, the problem with my repertoire is that um, people who play four are kind of happy to face the Caracan, the French, and all these kind of lines. Uh, they feel like they always can get a game and have a good chance to get an advantage. Um, and I don't know, they're just happy playing the, the positions. Uh, unless I know, let's say, my E45 really, really, really deeply and understand the positions very well. So I had to, my number one plan my number one priority before the U.S. Championship was to shore up my black repertoire against 1E4, which is why I learned the Sveshnikov defense, which I used in the in the U.S. Championship. So I thought it's a relatively concrete opening, an opening that I have a chance to kind of learn in three months. I thought it would be my best chance where it's objectively not bad, that I can rely on it in like one open, one tournament. And at the same time, um, um, you know, it's... Uh, it's it, it's 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 a type of position that I thought I could sort of fit my style at a re- reasonably well. I thought Rosalimo is a bit of a problem, but um, looks like I got through it. I um, still have some decent prep, decent ideas. So yeah, it, it wasn't perfect, but um, at least it felt like um, a little bit of an upgrade compared to what I had. And honestly speaking, um, and that was probably the only real. Thing I was able to do really well before the U.S. Championship. I certainly worked on my white repertoire, but because my openings were really lagging, you know, three months before the U.S. Championship, that didn't give me enough room, enough time to properly work on other areas such as calculation and things like that, which uh, turned out at some point to be also a weakness, right? So I think ultimately what it comes down to is. Uh, um, you have to perfect yourself. You can't really worry about others. And because I think anyone's dangerous. I mean, you, you know, you go to a tournament, play at 2300. If you're not prepared, you can also get a very bad position. 
So it's not about who you play. It's about how well prepared am I, what level of play I'm playing. And I feel like as long as I'm playing at the level that the best level that I'm capable of, as, as long as I'm improving, I don't really worry about who's sitting in front of me because, I, you know, relatively speaking, everybody still makes mistakes. Everybody still gives chances, no matter how good they are, right? And okay, in one game, you might get caught in some prep and you might not get chances. But for example, Sam Shanklin caught me in a prep, in a very annoying prep line and I didn't get anything, but still, in, at, well, at some point, I did get one chance. Uh, a very unusual move. I just didn't spot it, right? So even if you actually get out prepared, like I did against Bobby and against uh, Shanklin, you're still usually going to get chances because ultimately, no matter how good anyone is, nobody is an engine. Everybody's human. Everybody makes mistakes. And you have to just uh, be able to spot your chances. And I think, which leads me to another thing I really need to work on is creativity because the thing is good players, they don't make obvious mistakes, right? If they make mistakes, they're all going to be subtle. You know, they might miss things, but there will be some, you know, creative ideas. I mean, they could blunder, but very, very rarely. So usually if you want to win at that level, you have to really find some kind of creative idea at some point that they might not expect, or you need to come up with some deep prep that they might not suspect, right? So at this level, it comes down to the nuances. The nuances, the details just start mattering quite a lot, right? And that's why I'm saying it's so important to work at home because then you really, I think if you put in your heart and soul into the game, you'll always feel good at the end of the tournament that you, you know, you've done your maximum. And I think that's, yeah. There's, there's a lot there to unpack. Um, let, let me just follow up on two questions. Uh, so a player at your level, when you're trying to learn a new opening like the Sveshnikov, basically, well, not from scratch, but you know, you're, you're really trying to put it into your repertoire. Where do you begin? Do you, do you begin with a book? Do you begin with a, a DVD? Do you just sort of build your own files from from Megabase or Twic or, or correspondence games? Like, what, what's the process look like? Uh, yeah, in my case, I was actually learning it from scratch because I've never really actually studied it from either color. Um, yeah, so the way I did it is I have a few friends and a few people who know this opening very well, and they showed me the ideas, the general ideas, the the things that I really need to know. And then, for example, I was the one who needed to uh, shore up the details with the engine and stuff like that. I'll give you one example. For example, the game that I had against Ray Robson um, in the US Championship, where a lot of people praised my prep, you know, where Ray played a good line, but I was still very well prepared against it and I got a good, good position. It was a pretty sharp game. So the way it worked was um, in that game, um, you know, my, you know, my first, the first person who showed me that um, this discussion of this line, he just said, okay, you can play D6 of six the way Carlson did against MBL, right? But of course, this information is not enough at the level at US Championship. Could be enough at a 2000 level, but not at my level. So then I asked my other friend, who, by the way, plays Sveshnikov. He's a good friend of mine. He, we train together. And uh, he says, well, you have to be aware of this Queen A4 move. Right. And I didn't know that move. That was not in the file. So he told me I have to look at it deeply. So then I looked at that line deeply. I, I let the engine run for a while in that position. And that's how it came up with, you know, the novelty Queen B6 and so on and so forth. And then I was able to unleash all this prep. And then the rest of it was my work. Like, I think 
concrete work is something that I should be able to do on my own. The biggest thing for me is I need to be guided in the right direction. I need to kind of know what's playable, what's not playable. And I feel like, you know, there are some people who helped me uncover those uh, woods. So basically, when you're in the jungle, you need to know the direction first. I think that's going to save you a lot of time. So for that, I have other people helping me. But once I already have a path, then I'm usually on my own. I usually like to um, just let the engine run and, you know, the rest of it, I kind of analyze on my own. So that's how I do it. But some people maybe are the opposite. Like, so for example, someone like maybe Vladimir Kramnik, um, he's a creator. He tries to create his own new systems. So for him, he might be, you know, coming up with ideas on his own. What, and then uh, uh, he might be asking his friends to just check for concrete stuff with the engine, right? So I see myself more as a, as a, as a follower or as a, as an executor. That's, that's the good word rather than the creator, right? But I think everybody is, is different. So Magnus is probably both. Fabiano is probably a creator. Karyakin is probably a, an executor. Wesley, same thing. So everyone, everyone is different. Like Karpov was more of an executor. Kasparov was maybe more of a creator. Kramnik creator. So, you know, there are different styles, right? And I feel like this is my style. And, I, you know, the most important thing is you need to find what works for you and then, uh, you know, follow through with the plan. So I think, um, but I would say um, that's probably for me, but I think for the lower level, I think the most effective way these days is probably using Chessable. It's probably the most effective way to learn opening. You tests. are not that's the how, first person to say that. <laughs> that's how my students all uh, learn their stuff these days is, is via Chessable. So I would say that um, probably like the most convenient. I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of good books, but I think these days Chessable has kind of in that way took took over, uh, at least in terms of um, in terms of openings. Maybe in terms of other things, books are still more useful. But in terms of openings, I would probably, if I really want to learn something from scratch, I can also consider buying a chessable course. I'm also curious how a player at your level goes about training creativity. How is is that? I mean, I, I'm assuming it's different work than simply calculation work. Yeah, I think it's both. I think also I didn't really do enough calculation work as well. And I think if you do calculation work, you're forced to sometimes find creative ideas. So I think partially that's that that's needed as well. But I think uh, creativity is uh, potentially and could be a few things. It could be studying classical games like of creative players. You know, maybe studying games of uh, engines. Uh, they always come up with these unusual ideas going over your own games with the engine and spotting these things and trying to understand why I missed it. And uh, I think it's a simple advice as uh, you have to be willing to look for them, right? I think the, the biggest problem for me in the US Championship was I wasn't even looking for these kind of moves. Uh, and if you don't even look for these moves, like you don't have chances to find them. Um, you know, like in, actually at two moments in the tournament, I played an instant capture, which I thought has to be the absolute only move. It turns out it wasn't. It turns out there was a better move, right? There was, uh, so that's, uh, you know, that was just eye-opening for me. Like this kind of thing never happened to me. And who knew? I mean, who could have possibly thought that this was the thing that would prevent me from potentially winning the U.S. championship? Like uh, I would never have imagined, but, you know, you, I guess you learn something new every time. But at the same time, I guess, you know, it's good that, you know, such little things is the, the only thing that differs me. Right. And I think if I force myself in every game, every tournament, 
uh, just get into the habit of looking for these creative moves and maybe not playing a move ever like in less than 10, 15 seconds uh, and just being open-minded about different ideas, I think that's going to also help go a long way there, right? So, but of course, yeah, it's a very difficult question and something that I don't think I have uh, full answers with, but those are the things that I came up with so far because I really thought about it quite a lot after the tournament. I, I I wanted to ask you by by way of conclusion about the championship um, about the two longest games in the tournament, both of which were yours. Um, you had a a hundred and forty move win over Sam Sevian, uh, where you had a, an extra C pawn, uh, and you had the bishops against uh, against against two knights, right? Or was it knight and bishop? Yeah, two two bishops against knight and bishop. And then you also had that hundred and twenty seven. Uh, it, it it was painful even for me to look at it because it was. It was so hard. Uh, the 127 move draw against uh, Lazar Bruzan Batista, which was this arduous queen and pawn ending that where you, where you just had to hold it. Um, I, I wanted to just ask you briefly about each one in turn. Uh, so when you when you got that position, somewhere around move 40 or something against Sevian, where you know you have the extra pawn, you have the bishops, and you know it's supposed to be winning. But how, what, what is the mindset like trying to actually convert that? Because there's no, I mean, there, you can't possibly calculate a clear win. So how, how do you go about winning a position like that? Yeah, no, it's not easy. Uh, and I probably did not do a very good job at it because uh, there were at least a few times in the game that I slipped into a draw at some point. And okay, only because he was also in time pressure, he also didn't defend perfectly. You know, I was able to to win, but in fact, um, yeah, I didn't play that that well. And actually, I checked the game more carefully after that. I think I just chose the wrong plan in the in the beginning. Um, I think I should have played a different plan to try to create a second weakness on the king side, and I think I would have had a much better chance of winning much easier. But I think the problem is, I thought I somehow I thought like you, I thought the game should somehow win itself, but it just didn't. Um, you know, and I, I thought just by shuffling, he probably will make a mistake somewhere, but it wasn't ever that easy. Um, so I think, yeah, I think part of, the pro- part of the problem for me was actually I didn't quite understand the, the position that well, quite frankly, which, uh, which is certainly a very good uh, learning experience for me because, yeah, there was no reason why this game really should have gotten this long. Um, I feel like if I had the right approach from the beginning, the right technique, um, if I found the right plan, then I think I probably should win the game within 60, 70 moves. Um, yeah, and then speaking of the game against Lazar Brazon, um, that was a game where I uh, thought I had a, an end game which was a tiny bit better, the night end game. And then suddenly I made a couple of inaccuracies and suddenly I realized that I just slipped into a very unpleasant end game where actually I'm the one who has to be careful to make a draw. And uh, maybe at some point I was even losing. And uh, um, yeah, but the th- but uh, I was actually very happy to get into that queen um, queen and pawn against queen endgame because I sort of knew how to draw that. And one of the reasons I kind of knew how to draw that is because um, I remember in 2010 US Championship, I had a game against Dmitry Gurevich, a very long game, where I was on the winning side and I was the one trying to press and he held the draw. It was also... A game like around 120 moves or longer, something like that. And uh, I, I was trying to win, but it was all in vain. I couldn't win it. Um, and he defended kind of, he kind of showed me how how to defend that position. So 
I think that's a lesson for all of you that you have to try to play for a win every game and try to fight till then. Because even if you don't win the game, you might actually learn how to defend a certain bad position. And it turned out to be useful for me 11 years later. I kind of knew the general plans of how to make the draw there. And, uh, and I was able to, to hold it without too much trouble, actually. So, um, so that's kind of interesting uh, story behind that game. Definitely, I think listeners uh, should go and check both of these end games out. I mean, you know, all, all of the games I think were were, were really interesting. And you know, I'll tell you something interesting. What what was even more interesting is that I think Morris Ashley on the broadcast was saying about how he also had a game against Dmitry Gurevich, <laughs> where he was on the on also Dmitry Gurevich, and also he was on the war side, and there Dmitry Gurevich beat him. So it's it is just kind of funny the way it turned out. Like what goes around comes around. It's I think, and, and Gurevich, I think he's pretty well known for his endgame play. So I think this, it, it definitely makes sense that he would be the one to, uh, to, to do this to both of you. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely, uh, listeners should, by all means, check this out. And uh, yeah, really impressive endgame play. It, it, was, it, was, it was something to see. We'll, we'll put it that way. Um, but let's transition to the U.S. Open, the, the subject of your cover story. Uh, the one thing, you know, as, as I was editing the piece, and, and um, I, you know, I had asked you to write the story because I'd seen your work in Northwest Chess, which is uh, a regional magazine for the Pacific Northwest. And you've done annotations for them, I think, for some of the, um, was it the uh, Pacific Northwest Chess Center events that, that they've had? Yeah, because what happened was because of the pandemic, uh, all these Northwest events mm-hmm. were moved online. And uh, I started to notice they had good prizes, uh, reasonably good prizes for online chess. And I had at some point nothing to do. So I decided, you know, why not try to play a tournament? Um, and um, yeah, I remember in one tournament, I, the first tournament I played with them, I lost a painful game. And I offered, what if I annotate a few of the games from the tournament to give something back because I, didn't, I wasn't able to win the tournament? And Josh Cinnamon, the organizer of the tournaments, he said, sure, you know, let's give it a try. He, and I started to do it and he really liked it. And then I started playing in his many of his smaller events just to kind of give back to the community just so I can, you know, annotate the games after and so the lower raiders get a chance to play me. So, yeah, I thought it was pretty nice because uh, if I guess that was the one good part about the pandemic. Of course, the pandemic is horrible, but, you know, in the sense of chess, a lot of these local guys who would probably never play GM in their life got a chance to play not just me, but a few other GMs and you know, they also had their games annotated against me, which I think they probably enjoyed reading. And uh, so it was a very good for that community, I think. Uh, so that's kind of how it started. Yeah. By the way, uh, anyone who is looking for good chess periodicals, uh, definitely check out Northwest Chess. I subscribe. I think it's um, uh, one of the best regional or state magazines out there. Um, but, you know, it's funny because when I read these annotations, I thought, my goodness, he puts so much work into it. And then you sent me the game file of your games from the U S open. And I realized they edited those down immensely because you, you go into so much detail in your annotations. I mean, it's like, you know, words and variations and, and diagrams and you really tear these things apart. Now, do, do you do that just, just for publication or do you do that for all your games? Um, yeah, to be honest, I, I'm, you know, I, I think I have this habit that uh, when I work for someone else, 
I take more responsibility and I try to put more of my heart and soul into it than when I do it for myself. I think that was even the case, let's say, when I was the coach at the Olympiad in 2016 and 2018, Usually, or when I helped my students or anyone like that. Like when I, when I, when someone else depended on me, I really don't want to mess up because then I will be responsible for them. So uh, when I work for someone else, I really try to do my my absolute best. I feel like that's my responsibility. I wish I would have the same approach when I'm working on my own. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all feel that way. <laughs> it's but, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm at. I feel like if um because I knew that you know you guys could edit edit kind of edit out the things that you don't need. So I figured more is better than less in this case, because uh, I don't want to leave out something that you might think is important. So I thought, okay, if you feel something is not not as relevant, you'll just uh, get rid of it. So that was, I guess, my approach. Yeah, it's, um, for those of you, you'll be getting, well, Chess Life subscribers, US Chess members will be getting their magazines uh, in the near future, I was told by the printer. Uh, I think they're supposed to get to mailboxes between the 4th and the 8th of November. Uh, I, you're going to be so impressed by this article. And, and not not just because of the annotations, which are very frank, which I appreciate. They're, you know, Alex really lets you in on um, what he was thinking before the game, what he was thinking during the game. But I, I appreciate, and, and we talked a little bit about luck before, uh, you you really felt like luck was on your side in this in this article, uh, in this tournament. Can you, can you talk a little bit about your performance and why you think fortune favored you in New Jersey? Um, well, it's hard to explain why fortune favored me in New Jersey. That's, I think, completely uh, God's will. Uh, Point maybe taken, yeah. <laughs> God wants to give me another chance to play the U.S. Championship next year, which I'm very thankful for that because uh, I think by rating, I probably wouldn't have qualified. So, yeah, that gives my chess career more life and uh, that once makes me want to keep going in my chess career. So yeah, I'm thankful for that, of course. But yeah, in terms of um, in terms of why I think I got lucky in the chess tournament in a chess sense, well, I um, I had some you know pretty bad games early on in the tournament, um, you know, and uh, I was able to get away with them and not lose them, right? Um, or even be able to win the games. Like round three, I played a horrible game. Uh, round six, I don't think I played a horrible game, but I, you know, was outplayed. I didn't understand the position so well, uh, and I was completely lost. And I won that game as well. And it wasn't even just those games that I got lucky in, but even um, as you'll see in the article, I mentioned uh, even the games against uh, Hans Nimmen and John Burke, which it looked like I've won the games relatively cleanly. There were some lines that just happened to work out for me even if I didn't see them, let's say, ahead of time. And uh, that does not always happen. You know, very often when you miss something, you know, you really miss something and you mess up and, you know, you blow your position. And that was kind of happening a lot in the U.S. Championship. Um, but in the U.S. Open, even when I missed something, very often I would get away with it, either by it still working well for me um, or, or, you know, maybe I would get a lost position, but somehow I would, I would survive it. So I think I was getting luck in any possible shape or form in that tournament, which I think is uh, one of the reasons why I feel a bit pity that in that last round that I didn't try a bit harder. And by the way, that was also a, a moment where I should have picked up on that and worked more on that. It should have been like a warning sign for me before the US Championship because I also missed the creative idea and the, the winning idea, H5, which 
I just did not see at all. And I feel like I kind of just let my nerves get to me because when my opponent offered me a draw, I knew I was better, but a draw clinched me clear first. But of course, you know, to get nine out of nine, that would have been a historical result, like something that probably would have been um, very special for my career. So I kind of wanted to do that, but I guess I just couldn't fight those nerves of being able to just clinch the first place right there. And I spent about seven minutes, but the problem was but my thinking process was very cloudy uh, because it was I was very emotional and um, and I, you know, I didn't. I was calculating the same lines over and over again, like a very typical mistake we sometimes make instead of exploring all my, all my options. And in general, this was an end game, right? And it's an end game without too many tactics. So I should have been thinking more about general things before I even started to calculate. And then I think I would have a better chance to find the idea. But the problem was my thinking was, you know, started to become not clear after he offered me a draw and I, and I couldn't resist it. And I feel I definitely feel regrets about that because I feel like if you really want to be a top, top player um, like Fabi or Magnus or, you know, I think uh, Magnus and Fabi um, have declined draws um, in situation. For example, Fabi declined a, a draw against Grishuk when he was about to win the candidates. I mean, somehow I doubt I would be able to do that, but I think that's just a new, another level of, you know, being a fighter till then and really playing for the maximum that really showed the statement and magnus you know turned down a draw you know when he was about to win singfield cup against the Ronian, right he turned and even in the world championship against anand he he could have repeated moves in a better position he kept playing even though the the draw would clinch him uh the world championship match right so i feel like i still have a long way to go you know even if you were winning a tournament you still have to uh, somehow you know, not completely chicken out, but, and I feel like, yeah, maybe that lack of, you know, uh, that lack of real uh, determination till the end, um, maybe that lack of faith really prevented me from maybe doing better at the US Championship. Maybe the game of chess kind of punished me a little bit for that. So I feel like it's a little bit regrettable, um, especially in a tournament where everything is going your way. You really have to try to maximize your result, I feel, in, in, in that situation. So. That game, I definitely have regrets about. I feel like in the long run, you know, that hopefully that will be a lesson for me that I really need a stronger determination, stronger character. It, it works for everything. Like it works for trading harder at home instead of being a bit lazy and reading some random news. You know, it just works for everything because it's uh, every little detail matters at the top level. And I think that's what it takes to really, you know, achieve results, which you'll be really happy about consistently. Yeah, listeners should definitely uh, take a look at the, this final round game that Alex is referencing, uh, where he had Black against Benjamin Gladura. Um, and the, the key move is the last move where he H5. He, he could have played H five, but you know, um, principle of two weaknesses. By the way, that's the <laughs> idea. By the way, this, that's the same concept that I could have kind of won easier with against Seven, with. but against Seven it was a little bit uh, a little bit more difficult. But anyway, that was another thing that I knew I need to work on, mm. but. So you you had played some over the board tournaments before this, before the U.S. Open. Um, I don't know how many exactly, but I, I think you played the World Open. And um, but I'm I'm curious. I mean, what? How did you feel ha- being back at the U.S. Open after uh, you know a- with with the masks and with the pandemic and all that going on? Was it was it was it a relief to be back at the board? Was it was it stressful? Was it uh, how how did it feel? Um. 
No, I mean, it uh, felt uh, very good, of course, because, yeah, it's it's very good when the pandemic is slowing down and you can go back over the board. So in that sense, it's very good. Um, in my particular case, um, you know, I guess for me last year, it was I was the beneficiary of the U.S. Open canceling because I won that online qualifier, which was a replacement, which is how I got into this year's U.S. championship in the first place. Because maybe if it was a U.S. Open, maybe I wouldn't have won, right? So, you know, kind of for me, it worked out well, but I was still really happy to, you know, go back to over the board. U.S. Open, it was close to me. It was a very convenient location. Uh, I didn't even have to stay in a hotel. I was able to stay with friends, which is why I played one game a day schedule. Um, yeah, and um, I think masks don't really bother me. I think masks are very important. Um, in general, I'm a little bit pro-mask. Uh, I was very happy that they were required at the U.S. Championship because I thought it, it's going to give me an advantage because I'm more used to playing in them than others. <laughs> uh, but there is one important thing I want to mention about the masks, actually, because you see, I did actually play a couple of tournaments um, during the pandemic, even before even before the vaccines were out, uh, like the Spice Cup I played last year, which uh, which happened, one of the few tournaments that happened. It was uh, local, you know, for me, because I, stay, I was at Webster at that time. Yeah, and we all wore masks. And in the past, um, before the vaccines, I would wear the N95s um, to really protect myself to the maximum. But then I, and then I also played in that in the World Open and in another small tournament. And then I just realized my game, that my quality of chess is not that great. Um, and then I also played my first three rounds in the US Open. And an N95, I thought, okay, against low rates, it won't really matter. But then in round three, I almost lost. I literally almost lost. I came within whiskers of losing the game to a 2100 player. Um, and I realized that my chess is just poor. I mean, it seems like I want to get rid of the game. It feels like I'm not focusing very well. And I started to realize it's just very hard to calculate in that mask. I started to realize, you know, maybe it affects my game. So, you know, then I just told myself, you know what, if I'm afraid of COVID, I should be staying home. Right. Uh, you know, I should not be playing the tournament, but if I'm already at the tournament, I should be in the most comfortable situation I can be. So I switched to a cloth mask after that. And you can't believe how much of a difference it made. I suddenly felt like I can breathe comfortably. That cloth mask started feeling like it, you know, it, it didn't bother me at all. It's like, and, uh, uh, it's like you weight know. training. You, 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 you train with heavy weights and then you lift the light ones and then it's like, oh, this is great. This is easy. Yeah. So in the U.S. championship, you know, it felt great because like I, I was playing people who are not very accustomed to playing with masks at all because in the past, the lead players don't, didn't require masks. But, uh, you know, I, for me, that cloth mask felt really, really good compared to the N95. So I feel like in my case, I, I, I benefit a lot from from the mask. And honestly speaking, I feel like masks are probably not a bad idea going forward in tournaments anyway, because I mean, COVID is, you know, let's, let's be honest, COVID is not the only sickness out there. <laughs> it's true. The, I mean, you know, the, so, the, 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 the flu, I mean, when the kids are coughing, I mean, not just the kids, but you know, when you, yeah. everybody knows at a chess tournament, somebody's coughing, somebody's sneezing. Well, I think I, I've actually recently read that even these other sicknesses, they also could spread without, you know, asymptomatically. So mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I think during the winter, it's probably a good idea to just wear a mask like almost all the time indoors. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't, I don't think masks are a bad idea. I mean, maybe for some people, it could be difficult for some people with medical conditions. Maybe at some point it would be good if they're not completely required, if there are exceptions. But um, in general, I'm I'm pretty happy, honestly speaking, with the with the mask. Like I haven't gotten 
any kind of sickness in over two years. And I think that's partially because of the because of the mask. Um, but yeah, um, you know, in that sense, I was very happy. And, uh, you know, over the board, I mean, I got a chance to see my students. That was good. They Some of them played their first tournament in a really long time. Um, you know, so I think it was it was very good. I mean, for life going back to normal. Yeah. But honestly speaking, I don't mind online chess either. Like I've enjoyed uh, every bit of online so chess. You're, as well. you're, you're not worried about the the cheating part of it or the threat of cheating? Not really. I think the only thing maybe I would be a little concerned about is if I play really well somehow tournament of my life that I can be unfairly accused. I think that's the only thing I was slightly concerned about. But I think that. I guess if you compare like being afraid of COVID and afraid of that, probably my chances of you know having a bad COVID case might be higher than 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 that. I think that if you actually don't cheat, I think it's very, very unlikely you actually uh get banned. It's very, very rare. Uh, I mean, so um uh yeah, I think in also in these big tournaments they have all these precautions, share screen, zoom two cameras, uh, audio. I mean, it's going to be very hard to, to cheat unless you want to have uh, some headphone thing. And uh, uh, otherwise, it's going to be very hard to actually cheat. And honestly speaking, in serious tournaments, I don't think people cheat. I think it's actually more of a problem in scholastic tournaments anyway than the money tournaments, oddly enough. So that's why I, rec- I started to pre- recommend my students don't play online scholastic events. Just try to stick to uh, adult events where people are just trying to enjoy the game and have fun right where they're not playing so much for the result and they're just they just want to play chess and i think uh, i would say that maybe i've come across like a couple of cheaters but um but uh in in general i wouldn't say it's been such a such a problem for me um at least the once the pandemic started actually i think i've been cheated against a couple of times in the pro chess league last year and that was even kind of before the pandemic anyway so um you know uh, I feel like it's uh, it's a, unfortunate it's part of the game in online chess, but at the same time, I think there are pluses and minuses. Like the 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 plus on, with online chess, you don't have to travel anywhere, you don't have to wear a mask, you don't have to potentially get tested and worry that if you have COVID, you're out of the tournament. You know, it's like so. I guess uh, those other inconveniences are also not existent, and you don't have to spend any money and time for for traveling. So. In that sense, online chess uh, is is beneficial. But at the same time, I think mm, classical chess is very hard to play online. Like most online tournaments are rapid or slow, maybe slow rapid, but still rapid. So I think if you really want to play classical chess and you want to have more of these kind of tournaments, then you know it's kind of important for over the board to come back because online, I think, is more associated with uh, rapid time control. Let's uh let, let's jump back a bit uh, because I, I think most people may have first come to read about you or learn about you uh, when you were at Edward R. Murrow High School and you were chronicled or your chess team was chronicled in Michael Weinreb's uh, The Kings of New York. Um, what was it like to sort of be like a, I mean, not quite like a public person, but to be to be someone, you know, who who, who non-chess players were reading about as a teenager? Yeah, I mean, I think those were not my best days, um, you know, because that was when I was before I got to meet my coach, uh, Georgie Kajashvili. I talked about that in uh, my younger days a little bit also in another uh, interview I've done in Perpetual Chess Podcast, I think, with with Ben Johnson. Shout out to big friend of the pod, Ben Johnson. 
Yeah. So I've done an interview for them. It was a few years back, but um, yeah, basically that was before I got to know Georgie, my future coach and mentor and like almost like a big brother figure. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I had uh, didn't have very good morals. I was antisocial. I was at times a little bit rude. I was uh, I loved money too much. I had a lot of these quirks and problems. So, was, uh, so those were not my best years. Um, well, you know, to, to be fair, Alex, I, I think if if most of us, if we look back at our teen years, we we probably are not very thrilled with what we see. So you, you might no, be a little I mean, hard. You know, on the yourself. funny thing is that, that book that book mentions like all of my. Uh, shortcomings basically <laughs> that that I, that I that I've had uh, all of my bad moments during my chess career in that um, um, in that book but uh, you know it's okay it's um, you know, at least um, you know I, I got to where I am today you know I was able to get through that that part um, yeah and another thing I wanted to mention I guess since you mentioned a little bit about how active of a player I, I was mm-hmm. when I was younger, uh, and you said I played at the Nassau Chess Club and all that stuff. Um, like I don't know if it, I was actually good for my career or not. It was probably more of a. Uh, I was. I was. So I was. This jumps ahead a little bit. I was going to ask you about this because, you know, when I was looking at your records on MSA, um, and I remember this from the time too. You know, you you were a twenty five hundred player, twenty four high twenty four hundreds, twenty five hundred player for a while, and you were playing all these events. And and you plateaued, I think. And yeah. and I, I was going to ask you because you know I, I've got this magazine here. I've, I've I dug this out. I don't know if you've seen this in a long time. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's a cool um, one. Yeah. Where you know this uh, the the October two thousand five issue of Chess Life, mm-hmm. featuring under sixteen world champion Alex Lenderman and an interview with him, uh, featuring a, a win over. Do you remember who the big win was over? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no slouch. No, no slouch <laughs> that you beat. Um, you know, so I mean, you you had great talent, and it just something just didn't click, and then well, it's it, it's not like something didn't click. It was just that I I took a different, completely took a different approach to my chess and life than I should have. Uh, so basically, what happened was um, when I was uh, when I was sixteen years old, um, you know, fifteen years old, almost sixteen, I won that World Youth ahead of Yanni Bonyshen with Sherla Graf. They were in second and third place. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I forgot that the, the Vashir Legrave was in third. <laughs> yeah, but Nipomnishi I beat like in a very with the thanks to Abi Friedman, he helped me prepare really well for that game. Shout out to him. He's still sometimes coaching at these world mm-hmm. events. Very, I mean, very um, successful in, in 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 coaching these events. Yeah, he was, I think, one of the big reasons of why I won my last three games the way I did. Uh, well, also Joel Benjamin, I remember, helped me prepare for the last game. He he came up with a nice idea. A nice prep for the last game, but yeah, what I was gonna what, what I was gonna say is that um, unfortunately, what happened was I won the world youth, and you know I was still a very immature kid. I was sixteen. I was still like not sure what was happening in life. Uh, I didn't really have very good guidance, I guess, in a way. Also, didn't really have a chess father figure. Maybe I didn't have trust enough trust in like people wanting to help me in the chess community, and. Um, Somehow I didn't feel like I got the support I wanted from the chess community. I don't want to, let's say, uh, blame anyone in particular. But basically, I feel like, yeah, I didn't get enough support. I didn't get enough recognition. I felt like GMs weren't really respecting me. Like, okay, now it sounds very silly, all of that. But I felt like, you know, I'm not get, I, I wasn't getting any money or anything. And I was just like, 
why am I doing this? Like, what's the point of even becoming a GM? I, I, I felt like the, the way the GMs live professionally did not really seem attractive. Um, yeah, I mean, these GMs that I was around were not really role models to me, somehow I thought. And um, I don't know, I just decided, you know, maybe I should start teaching because at least with teaching, I can start uh, making more money. And at that time in 2006, my parents wanted to buy a, an apartment and I wanted to somehow help them out. Instead of having them spend money on me for chess, I wanted to actually help them by earning money when I was 16. Um, and, uh, you know, I did that and I started to become very financially oriented. So instead of focusing on playing good tournaments the way I was supposed to, like while Yanni Bomnishu was playing Kramnik and super tournaments, uh, when he was like 2,500 and uh, Fabiano Corona moved to Europe and trying to play super tournaments. I was sitting there at the Marshall Chess Club in Nassau where that my top competition was, uh, the Iron Man Jay Bowen, who was I am, but like that was my usually in most tournaments that my top competition. And I was playing a lot of way lower rated players. And that's just not how you you really get better. Right. So I was but I wasn't trying to get better anymore. I wasn't trying to become a GM. I was just gonna go to college, go the traditional route. And I was trying to make money by teaching and also playing these smaller tournaments. Right. So for me it started to become just like a business all about money which uh, is, a very, is a very bad way to spend your years 16 to 19. And, you know, because those are, I, like, realistically speaking, when I was 16 and Fabi was 13, I was definitely not a worse player than him. But then, of course, just because of my approach to chess from that moment, uh, you know, I was, I was, while I was playing at best Jay Bonin, uh, he was playing all these strong GMs regularly, playing all these good tournaments. And, of course, he shot up. And all these other guys shot up. They surpassed me. And I stayed in one place. And that was until I met my future coach and mentor, Georgi Kachishvili, who actually got me out of this situation and told me that, you know, I can still be a great chess player. He remembered that I won the World Youth. And uh, he said I should become a grandmaster easily, which, by the way, happened. You know, I got, I became grandmaster six months after starting to work with him. And, and then, yeah, the norms. I mean, like, you had all three norms were like in like six weeks. Uh, yeah, like three, I think thirty-two days or something like that. Yeah, wow. so I, I, it was it was incredible. It might still be a, a record. So somehow, God showed me, you know, that chess was still for me, right? And that's when I decided to leave college for some time. And uh, basically, I was going to be a math teacher at that time. I did two years at Brooklyn College, but then I decided, you know what? I can always do chess teaching if I really need to, but I should really try to become the best chess player I can be. I started to really believe in myself that I. I could become a pretty strong grandmaster. And uh, that was able to kind of get me out of this situation where I was literally not improving at all. And at least I still became to where I was now, to where I am now because of, because of him. But of course, I made some mistakes when I was in my early 20s as well. And in particular, the biggest regret I have is um, even when I was like early 20s, I was still not very mature. And the problem was that once I started having some bad results, um, once I started having a bad period and, uh, and also Georgie, he also was losing some uncharacteristic games to like slower rated. And I started to have doubts. That's the rough, the problem. Once you start having doubts, the game of chess turns back on you. I was starting to have doubts whether I really should try to become an elite player. I thought maybe I should just become an average GM and be a coach. Like I was always, what really I think hurt me in my chess career when I was younger and prevented me from becoming 
really an elite player, the player that I could have maybe become was the love for money. Like I was, for me, everything was about money. Like I was not maybe willing to go the, you know, that extra mile to do sacrifices for my chess. As soon as I saw that it wasn't going very smoothly for me, I started having doubts. I started blaming my coach. I started thinking maybe he's not, he was also not playing that well at that time. I thought maybe he's just not that good. Maybe, maybe he's just trying to use me for money. And that's why he's telling me I can become a lead. Like I sincerely had all these thoughts and, uh, you know, of course, that was not true. And I started to realize a few years later that I was just wrong. But the problem is this kind of mentality pushed me back, right? And when I was playing tournaments, you know, I was not having the right approach, right? I was, I was playing for results too much and uh, wanting draws. Like I was, it was just, I was not, I, what I should have been doing when I was younger is I should have just not worried about results and given myself three, four years to just, you know, grow naturally and just go ahead and believe, believe something good will happen, you know, but instead I kind of started to have doubt. I started overthinking. I started maybe this, maybe this, maybe this. And that's when I feel like the game of chess, you know, turned back on me. And uh, that's why I think like I was so inconsistent in my early twenties and even mid twenties. And that's why I was not able to really you know, even get to the level, let's say that Sam Shanklin is at now, because um, even even after I lost, let's say all these three years, okay, that was fine. I mean, I was a very young kid. I had no one to guide me. I was able to help my parents ultimately buy their apartment. I ended up accumulating some money, which I was then able to invest into my chest. I guess you can say that was meant to be, that that was all good, I guess. But then the problem was when I already had Georgie and I was on the right track, I started going off the right track. And that was, I think, really that's something that's more regrettable because um, I feel like if I just trusted the process and not worry so much about something immediate, um, then um, then things would be better. But the problem is I just had too high expectations. I thought I would become an elite player by like uh, 25 at the latest. But it turned out it was just much harder than I thought. And then I started kind of maybe losing trust. And uh, once you lose trust, in the process and your coach a little bit here and there, then it's very difficult to kind of regain that. And I feel like, you know, for example, Sam Shanklin, you know, he never really lost trust. Like he always kind of went, went forward. Right. And I think that's why he, you know, he was willing to work on his chest more productively, more consistently. And he was able to get to where he was because let's say when we were both, let's say when I was 20 and he was like 18, he was definitely not a be- not a better player than me. We're probably around the same level. If anyone, like I became GM earlier than him. But I think the difference was that he had a better approach to chess than I was, which is why he um, he became a better player, at least at the moment. Um, so, but I but I feel like if I can actually do in my 30s what I should have been doing in my 20s, have that kind of approach, then I still feel like actually I have a... I can do a lot of very good things in my chest, but I really need to, you know, have that faith and be very dedicated and be patient. How did you, you talk about sort of losing faith in your coach and losing faith in yourself. How did you get back on the right track then? What was the, what, what was the turning point for you? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to say. Well, I think the, the biggest turning point for me uh, ultimately was when actually I started to teach a lot. So there was, I think at some point in around late 2018, early 2019, I, I got to the point that I was actually having a lot of students. I had something like 15 students. Uh, and Georgie was always worrying me that, 
warning me that this this job is not so easy. There, it's not a piece of cake. There are its own problems there. Like it might be good for money in a lot of ways, but there are a lot of problems there as well. And somehow I just didn't believe it enough. I just didn't quite see it for myself. I needed to probably see it for myself to realize how difficult it really is. Like once you start dealing with difficult parents, once you start dealing with students who who are creating the problems. Once I started to deal with different kinds of students, I started to realize that it's not so easy. And uh, and that's actually why I decided to go to Webster because I started to realize that coaching is not easy. Like I, will, I actually started to have doubts if I can actually be a long-term good coach. That's why I wanted something else on top of that. And like I already mentioned, I had two years of Brooklyn College from 10 years ago. So I figured it's only going to take me two more years to finish my degree, which was a track that I thought, okay, this is a good time to try to finish it. You know, Webster's obviously giving me very good conditions, good scholarship. I thought an opportunity to train with some great players, Susan Polker, Paul Strong, wonderful environment for my chest. Also get a chance to live a little bit independently, which I thought for me would be very important um, in case I want to have a family someday. So I thought overall it was a very good thing for me. Um, and um you know, I started to realize actually that that data analytics degree that I that I went for, I started to realize I don't enjoy it as much either. And once I started to realize all these drawbacks, like in the real world, you know, all these other problems, like in coaching, everywhere else, once I realized that other things in life are very, very far from rosy, I start to realize, wait a second, like why was I like not liking chess enough? Like maybe chess actually, you know, because the good thing about chess is in chess you're only responsible mostly for yourself. If you lose a game, you're only hurting yourself. If you make a mistake, you only hurt yourself. But in other parts of uh, life, if you, if you coach and if you make a mistake, someone else suffers. If, you, if, if you're a lawyer and you make a mistake, somebody could uh, lose a lot of money. If you're a doctor and you make a mistake, that's a, even more of a disaster. You can kill someone, right? So I started to just realize that, you know what? You know, with chess, it's, it's just a little different because... Um, unless I'm having my own family and unless I really need to make like a lot of money uh, quickly, uh, there's just no reason why I shouldn't at least try to play chess and try to invest into that. Because uh, first of all, once I'm like over 50, over 60, clearly I'm not going to be able to try to improve on my game anymore, uh, like at my level. And secondly, so I know that right now it's kind of my last bullets. Uh, while I'm still in my early 30s, I feel like until 40, I still have realistic chance to try to improve and grow as a chess player. And um, and secondly, I just feel like you know that this thought of like being able to reach my maximum with what I have is is something I really treasure. I feel like um, I started to feel these regrets that man, I still did not achieve my maximum as a chess player. It started to it started to hit me once I started to do these other things. And um, and I think now I, I realized that I was just wrong all the, all the way through, you know, when I was in my early 20s, because I, I looked at things too directly, too concretely. I mean, for me, it was like very black and white. It was about making money. It was, uh, I didn't see things beyond that. But then I realized that money does not actually bring happiness. It really doesn't. Like I was, I had at some point 10, 15 students, but if I have a student who's stuck at 1800 for two years, I'm not happy about getting money from them anymore. I really am not, you know, and uh, that's something like, for example, I couldn't understand, um, you know, when I was in my early 20s. So I guess I had to learn things the hard way, but I think 
the good thing for me is I think nothing is lost yet. I still feel like I can salvage a lot of my chess career and uh, we'll see what happens. That is a perfect point for us to segue into our final thing. Uh, and Alex uh, told me beforehand um, that he, he, he is prepared for what is to come now. Uh, regular listeners know that I have been asking every guest a series of 10 questions that were made famous by James Lipton on Inside the Actor's Studio. Um, and Lipton himself was inspired by Bernard Pivot's version of Marcel Proust's questionnaires. So, Alex, I'm going to ask you 10 questions uh, modified from Lipton's version just uh, to make sure everything works for a family-friendly podcast. And, uh, and, and we'll see what your, what your answers are. So, Alex Lenderman. Let's get to it. <laughs> I love it. I, you're the first person who was prepared for this. I'm excited to see what's going to happen. All right. Alex Lenderman, what is your favorite word? Uh, I would say patience. Patience. Why? Well, because uh, I feel like that's something I've lacked all my life. Uh, you, you know, I, I, I feel like in my life, I was always very impatient, impatient, like I wanted something right away, very quickly. And, um, you know, I think that's, it's very rewarding, right? Because in life, you don't get things usually right away. You have to be patient to improve on something. You have to be patient to when you have a problem and, you know, it doesn't get solved right away. You have to you know, think about it. Um, and another thing about patience is that you, you kind of have to be thankful um, to God. Like if you're getting patient and, uh, you know, you have a problem in life and you're angry and something like about that, that's not a, a very good trait, right? And if you're patient, it's like you're saying, okay, I accept that, you know, this is happening to me like this um, in, in life. And, um, you know, when you have ex that acceptance, um, that humbleness, um, and by the way, acceptance, humbleness, faith, those are would be also good. Uh, love, those would be also good words um, that I can use as my favorite, but I have to choose one. So um, <laughs> ultimately, um, you know, you you humble yourself um, in front of in front of life, and uh, you, you accept things um, the way they are. And um, um, yeah, I guess that's the best way to. Just because I, I put it this way, I think we as humans are not perfect, right? Uh, so we cannot be perfect. We cannot not sin. We cannot always feel very bad um, about uh, what we do consistently. But what we can do, what it is in our power is to at least be uh, thankful and patient uh, with life and not be angry at life uh, for what it sends you and uh, accept things the way we are. And I think if you have this kind of uh, approach, then um, good things will happen. All right. I like that. Very thoughtful. Um, what is your least favorite word then? I would say the word hate because I feel like it's very overused by people. And I have a friend who sometimes uses it. I, I told my friend a few times to stop using it. I think uh, people use it a little bit too much. I think hate is a very strong word. And uh, people use it in too many different uh, uh, contexts when it should probably, it's not very appropriate to, to use it. What is your dream of happiness? This one I think is pretty easy, being with God and the eternity. All right. Well, I guess we're going to hear that maybe when we come back to number 10. Um, towards what faults 
do you feel most indulgent? I would definitely say laziness because uh, I think that's the root for me of all the... In the past, I would say liking money too much, but now I would say laziness because I feel like um, sometimes I uh, wake up and I just don't want to get out of bed. I start thinking about some stupid things. I I, I want to go back to sleep. And I feel like if I really want to you know, win that year's championship and be more disciplined, become a great player... I have to just force myself to be determined and work hard and be as productive as I can with all the time that I have um, during the day. Because if you don't use all your time, well, like in the chess game, you know, you will get into time pressure. And when you need that time later on somewhere, you will not have time to, to do it. So it's very important that I use my time productively. So I really need to work on that. So I would definitely say laziness. Right. Who would you like to see on a new banknote? Well, as a chess player, I would definitely say Bobby Fischer. I mean, he revolutionized the game. He made chess profession uh, an actual profession. He he was asking for conditions in tournaments. I think before Fischer, there was hardly any money in chess. And even the world champions, they were still kind of semi-professional. They, they did other things. They weren't really able to make as much money in it. But I think people spoke in playing areas. I mean, you know. You know, there was poor lighting. I think Fisher put the end to all of that. And prizes were like probably 10 times more after Fisher than before, not to mention the Fisher rules. So I would definitely say, given that I'm a chess player, I would say Fisher. But I think uh, Tiger Woods or someone like that would also be a good option. Interesting. Because he revolutionized golf. Are, are you a golf player? No, I'm not a golf player. That's why I chose Bobby Fisher. But <laughs> I'm still, um, Tiger Woods would be also a very logical option in that okay. sense. Okay. Um, what opening do you love? Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say I love any opening so much, but I would say Nimzo Indian probably is the closest one because it's something that I, one of the few openings I could play from both colors. Hmm. What opening do you hate? Uh, I would say, group. well, hate again. I don't want to use that okay. word. Do, do you strongly dislike? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I would, I would say Grunfeld because it's 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 an opening that was a thorn on my side all my chess career basically and still is to this day. I would say Grunfeld it's it's an opening that's very hard for me to play as black because it's requires a feel and memorization. It's just uh, at this point it's almost unrealistic for me to play the Grunfeld. And as white, I always struggle to find an advantage against it because it's a good opening. So I would say Grunfeld Grunfeld is really a thorn on my side as a D4. What profession other than your own? would you like to attempt? Uh, I would say statistician. I really like to work with numbers and statistics and things like that. What profession would you not like to try? Uh, president. Yeah, <laughs> it's a tough job. Um, last question, and I suspect we may have already gotten a preview. Uh, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Yeah, well, I don't think I deserve that uh, with all the sins I, I commit. Uh, but, uh, you know, of course, the words that I think everyone would love to hear, and that's what we're all trying to aim for, is to hear these following words outside the Bible for this. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. A man who knows this stuff, a biblical sky. I like this. This Alex, I, I have to say, this is and this has been one of my favorite interviews because you are so incredibly thoughtful. And you know, you have obviously thought a lot about yourself and the the things you've done and your place in the world. 
Um, and, and ha- you know, as being a chess fan who's been around, I mean, I grew up in New York chess. I'm a little older than you are. So I didn't, you know, we didn't cross paths at that point, but I, I, I kept track of it. And uh, to see you get to where you are now is, is just, it's, it's outstanding. So. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And hopefully I can, uh, hopefully this is not, uh, this is not my, this is not, hopefully this is far from my peak to this day. And hopefully we can do another interview when I, when I have some more chess success. Your next cover story. I love it. Alex Lenderman, if anyone is trying to contact you or if they're, if they're interested in lessons, if you're doing that, or if they, how, how can they get a hold of you? Uh, I would say uh, email. So my email is alexlenderman33 at hotmail.com. So once again, alexlenderman33 uh, at hotmail.com. Uh, yeah, you can also send me a message on Facebook. I'm Alexander Lenderman there. But I would say email is preferred. Also, I have uh, chess.com and lead chess. Uh, so you can find me there. But again, I would much prefer um, email because I check that every day. And uh, I, I, uh, I can say, by the way, he's very fast with the responses. So we, we had a little, a little hiccup this morning, uh, with a little technical hiccup. And uh, yeah, Alex was right on it. And uh, so email, definitely get a hold of him that way. I think that's, that's a good way to leave it. All right. Well, Alex, uh, thank you so much. This has been really, I think, a, a fascinating interview. And I think our, our listeners are going to enjoy it as much as they're going to enjoy our November cover story. So thank you, Alex Lenderman. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Our podcast will return next month on the first Tuesday, when we will again be making a deep dive into the pages of Chess Life magazine. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose educational mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button, where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. If you're already a member, consider clicking on the donate button at uschess.org. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Thank you and good chess. Chess.